Well, we're getting back into our series in Mark today. We've been in it since last September, approximately. We've had a few breaks here and there. We're jumping back into the study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we'll be done on Easter-ish. And so we're at Mark chapter 12 today, and we're gradually climbing our way up the mountain of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. I would remind you it's in three sections. We see Mark is divided when... Um, he's serving three different kinds of people. You know, the, the Gospel of Mark portrays Christ as the Son of Man, but he's also the uh, Son of God. And so we've titled our series, Son of God, Servant of Man. It shows him serving, first of all, the crowds in those initial chapters in Galilee. And then as the cross is closer, he begins to serve just his brothers and teaching them, preparing them for what's ahead. And as you get to about chapter 14, you find that he's really serving his Father's will and going to the cross and being the true deliverance for people. And that's what we're seeing is his continued march toward Calvary. And we're following that. And make no mistake, church, deliverance is what they were after, all right? Uh, they were, the Jewish folks were, were being kind of ruled by Rome and it was oppression. So everyone was after deliverance of some type. The, the general crowd, they wanted deliverance for the sake of relief. The leaders wanted deliverance for the sake of control. But there was a general agreement that we need deliverance. And so they were, in one sense, looking for a Messiah. The question was, how would this Messiah deliver them? And for the most part, you'll find in the Gospels, they were waiting for an immediate, physical, horizontal, in-the-moment relief, rescue, deliverance that was physical. Could you relieve me of Roman oppression? Could you take care of these taxes? Could you deal with the a lack of income, you know, economically, militarily, politically? Could you take care of things, Mr. Messiah? And Christ, I think, in this section of Mark, as he's nearing the cross and as he's dealing with those leaders who are trying to trap him incessantly, he actually answers the questions about true deliverance and, and what it looks like and, and who it's in. So let's together analyze Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, going through about thir verse 37. And let's see this morning really where true deliverance comes from. What I'd like to do is to walk you through the first three questions that are asked of Jesus. I won't read all the text. You read them, in fact. You can read the verses while I talk about them. We'll come to the last section, which is a question that Jesus asked them and then we'll read that and, and kind of dig in a little more and find out really the, the thread that I think is speaking to us today. So we begin in Mark 12, verse 13. Here's the first question that's asked to Jesus. We're going to see in this simple set of verses, verses 13 through 17, that deliverance is not in political maneuvers or programs, kind of fitting right before the caucus. Wouldn't you agree? I love how the Lord does this. Verses 13 through 17 discuss really the Pharisees and the Herodians, which is an odd couple, by the way, because the Pharisees were stringent adherents to the law. They wanted to uh, make sure it was Jewish and Jewish only. But the Herodians were those who were kind of sympathetic towards King Herod. They felt like subjugation would be the best way to get along. And so it's kind of an odd couple here. But they were alliance, if we'll call it that. They were in bed together when it came to killing Jesus, that's for sure. They didn't get along otherwise, but to plot against Jesus, they came together. And here's what they asked the Lord. They asked him basically, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
And this is a trapping question. You'll see in the text, what is it, verse 13, this is what they were intending to do. It says they came to trap him in his talk. The word trap there is the word used to, to pursue a uh, prey violently. So they were going after him. And the question is, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful? Now, in their mind, what they're doing is they're pitting Jesus against either his own people or against the government in charge. So they're thinking if he says you should not pay taxes, oh, that's going to be like sedition. The government will come in and take care of him. But if he says, oh, yes, you should pay taxes, then he'll be betraying his own people. So we've got him. He's stuck. But Jesus rises above all this, and he actually says, yes, you should pay taxes. He asks for a coin. He says, bring me a coin. And he says, whose image is on this? And it's Caesar's. And so he says, as long as Caesar's in control, give your tax money to him. The word tax there is the word for the imperial tax that was levied upon the people because uh, Rome was occupying them. And so every time they paid it, they thought about who was in their land. And he says, as long as they're in charge, pay it. But then he says, when it comes to your life, don't give that to Caesar. The implication, of course, is that Caesar's not God. In that culture, they thought he was. They would want to render him worship. So he says here, no, give him your money, but don't give him your worship. That belongs to God. And I believe in the middle of that conversation, he's showing them the coin. He says, whose image is inscribed here? And they're saying Caesar's. But then when he puts the coin away and says, yeah, give Caesar your money, but give your life to God, I think the implication is because your life is stamped with God's image. You bear his image. So don't give your worship and your service to a mere man. Yeah, give him your money. But give your worship, give your life to God. And so he, he rises above the question. He's not able to be trapped. You see, they were wanting a political answer to their situation. They were wanting a, a political maneuver. Could you solve this politically? We may find this strange, but when I was in Israel a few years ago, this is how they think. This is how the Jewish people were thinking and still think. They want someone to come in and relieve them militarily, politically, and economically. Our tour guide on my last trip, I'm going again this November and taking several of you with me. You're welcome to go. Uh, you'll probably find this to be true if you go with me. But our tour guide, his name was Abraham, and, and we talked about Christ, and he knew why we were there, and, and he said, you know, I don't believe he was the Messiah. I said, oh, I, I didn't know that. Why do you not believe Jesus was the Messiah? And he says, because he didn't win. I said, what do you mean? He said, hey, if he was really going to deliver us, he wouldn't have been crucified. So that's proof positive he wasn't the Messiah. He lost. See, what he was waiting on was deliverance in a political, economic, military fashion. He had not been acquainted with Isaiah 53 that the servant would be a suffering servant. Or John 129 in which John proclaimed the Lamb of God would take away the sins of the world. So he's missing those elements. That's the Holy Spirit move on his heart to open his eyes, yes. But in that moment, he just said, hey, if he really was Jesus, he would have won. So he said, we're still waiting on that one. It's similar to this, this question here. Hey, what can you do, Jesus, to politically, militarily, economically relieve us? And he says, you know what? Pay your taxes as long as you can, but live your life for God. That's whose image is on your life. And so he just kind of gets above all that. He's not going to be trapped. The answer's not in who you pay taxes to or not. The answer's in following Christ. He comes next to the Sadducees. And they give him a theological riddle. What we're going to see in, this, in these verses is that deliverance is not in 
theological prowess. Now, notice what this does. This won't take long. It's just interesting. The Sadducees, you see in verse 18, they don't believe in the resurrection. You following that? And yet they ask him a hypothetical question. They kind of give him a conundrum involving the resurrection. So do you think their hearts are legit? Are they really curious? Not at all. They don't even believe in the resurrection, but they're trying to test him and trap him again. It involves a lady who's been married seven times. She has no children. And so they ask him in verse 23, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? You can almost see him back there folding their arms, snickering like, <laughs> you'll never get this, you know. And they don't even believe in the resurrection themselves. And Jesus, again, he just elevates the real answer. He kind of gets above the fray of the argument. He shows that, you know what? Getting involved in theological conundrums and debates isn't really the answer to the problem. He says, in fact, that they are wrong. He calls them wrong twice, verse 24 and verse 27. The phrasing here is very unique. When he says, you are wrong, and then he says later, you are quite wrong, it's most literally translated, you're way off base. He's saying, guys, you're out in left field. And he says that because he says, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Because the scriptures teach a resurrection, and it's the power of God that enables a resurrection. And they were missing both. So in their, in their uh, theological prowess to try to figure out exact answers, so to speak, they missed the whole point. Sounds a little bit like seminary sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> that you can almost get so in, um, involved in a minute detail. And I love theology, by the way. I like making sure we get the right answer, so to speak. But guess what? That's not where our deliverance is found. And taking pride in being arrogant in that you can perhaps create a situation that's hypothetical, no one can figure out, maybe you're kind of the smartest guy in the room, doesn't really bring deliverance to your soul. It's not the answer to the problem. And Jesus says you are wrong because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And I like how he ends this. He draws them back to Moses and the, watch this, the eternality of God. Do you see this in verse 27? He talks about how God is I am. In other words, he's saying this, watch very carefully. You want to place God, in one sense, as the God of the dead. They're never raised, and so it's always a past tense. Do you live in this life, then you're done, so your life is over. He says, but with God, who is always eternal, and so always in the moment, he does raise the dead people, and they're with him in the moment. They're present. God is I am, and that's the one you're dealing with. I love how he brings this all to the present tense. It's the power of the resurrection. And so God is the answer. A present tense, in the moment, eternal God. In fact, I would say that perhaps these Sadducees were trying to make eternal life more about them than they were about God. Whose wife will she be? What will happen to us? Are we raised? We don't think we are. And he says, you know what? It's really focused on God. And, and eternal life is far better than anything you can think of now in this present life. I just like how he comes to these guys and he just says, hey, you know, your theological prowess isn't the answer to our problems. Figuring out situations that actually don't exist. That's not how we're going to get out of this mess, so to speak. That's not how you're going to get out of this mess. So he attacks and, and kind of, first of all, says it's not in a political maneuver or program. It's not in someone with theological prowess. And then in verses 28 through about verse 34, he shows us that it's not in scriptural knowledge or spiritual position. This is perhaps the most stunning one because the, the sense in these verses, and you can be reading them while I'm kind of walking you through them, the sense is that the scribe, here's the fourth of these groups, there's the Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, and scribe. 
the scribe actually appears to be quite, can I use the word innocent? He appears to be actually curious. Now, if you read Matthew's parallel account, Matthew 22, we find that he's actually not. The text there says he's testing the Lord as well. But he really appears to be polite, gentle, and he actually asked the Lord in verse 28, which commandment's the most important of all? Which sums it up the best? And so Christ answers, and I love verse 32. I mean, who has the courage to say, oh yeah, Jesus, you're right. <laughs> That's what happens here, right? You're right, teacher. And he, re- he kind of re-quotes the answer back. Okay, you passed the test, Jesus. You gave the right answer. And this is important because a scribe's job was to know the exact answer. To know the scriptures well enough, the Old Testament, that when they would transcribe it, when they would write it again, and when they would copy it, they wouldn't miss a letter. They wouldn't miss a word. So he should know the answer. So he asked Christ the question, which, by the way, this comes out of Deuteronomy. It's what every Jewish person would have held to as, as the core of their belief. There's one God, and you worship him with everything you have. Christ says that. He affirms it. And he's waiting for Jesus, I think, to say, okay, you're in. You're not like the Herodians. You're not like the Pharisees. Uh, you're not the Sadducees, you're in. But what does Jesus say to him? He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. To a man with great position and who had the right answer, Jesus still said to him, you're not far away. Which says to me, I guess you can be close and still not be in. Now, I mean, perhaps when you see this idea of, of having the right scriptural knowledge, or a certain spiritual position, you think, how can that not equal following Christ? How can that not equal the right, uh, you know, the right answer, not be the right thing to do? I would just remind you that you can be outwardly right, but inwardly wrong. You can have a technically correct answer and a deceitfully wicked heart. You can have lawful legal compliance with your mouth, but you can be far away with your soul. This is where this man was. And to be very frank with you, hell will be filled with people just like this guy. Churchgoers who are technical Christians, they've kind of said, or I should say, they've kind of chanted the prayer. They can go back to a day in which they said, I said that prayer, I filled that card out. They didn't mean it. They didn't really know what they were saying, but it sounded good in the moment. It kind of gave them this kind of magic potion feel. And so they kind of claim this technically correct answer. Plus, they might say, well, I was baptized. I was a member of the church. I had good parents. I had this spiritual position. In their minds, I've got everything working for me on the outside, but inside their heart is far from God. But they can say the right words to you. They've memorized it. They know it. It sounds actually pretty good. They're technically compliant, but they're spiritually lost. I was talking with a man this week. He was describing to me how he came to Christ. He and his wife were about 27. And he said to me, we knew something was missing. And so we asked some friends of ours who we knew believed in God, how do you guys uh, do it? Your marriage, the young kids, like it seems like you guys have a different kind of inner compass than we do. And so this couple said, why don't you come to church with us? And we'll have dinner together after, we'll just talk. And so they did. 
And this gentleman told me, he said, for weeks and months we attended that church and he said, we learned the gospel, but we were not Christian. We weren't following Jesus, we were learning facts. We were hearing information that made sense and so we would just jot it down. And he said, we learned how to say it, but he said, we were no more saved than we were before we started attending. He said, until the day the Holy Spirit convicted us and asked us this question, do you believe what you're learning? It's like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, when the gospel comes to you, that Christ was, uh, he died, was buried, and rose again, will you take your stand on it? He said, by taking your stand on the gospel, by this you are saved. And so being saved, trusting Christ, following Jesus is far more than knowing the right language, having the right answer, having a certain position. It's actually trusting taking your stand on the gospel, believing. This man on the phone said to me this. He said, it wasn't until I accepted and believed that's when God saved me. He's right. It's not just knowing information. It's accepting and believing the person behind the information. And so I just say to you that these three questions are, are quite interesting. From the, from the Pharisees, Herodians, the Sadducees, and the scribes, they, they kind of answer three things for us. That deliverance which is what they were after, is not in political maneuvers or programs. It's not in theological prowess, being able to maneuver and navigate tough waters. And it's really not in scriptural knowledge and spiritual position. And when he answered these questions, I, I love the end of verse 34. Look there in your Bibles with me. That apparently this was so stunning that it silenced everyone. Do you see that? No one dared to ask him any more questions. And from what we know, this is the final question from the leaders who are trying to trap him in the book of Mark. We're three days away from the crucifixion. So it appears they just left and said, well, we can't have any more conversations, so we'll go right to crucifixion. When I, when I read this, I'm reminded of a funny incident when I was in high school. Uh, I grew up in Tennessee, and I wrestled, and I wasn't very good at all, but that's what I did. And so um, one summer, our coach took us to Wisconsin, and I had never really been out, up beyond Kentucky. So I'm a high schooler, and we're going to Wisconsin. I'm thinking, man, that's like a, a week's trip probably, isn't it? How do you ever get to Wisconsin? So we go to Wisconsin to Camp of Champions, which was put on by John and Ben Peterson. They were Olympic gold and silver medalists. Some of you older folks will remember their names probably if you were into wrestling. And um, so we get there, and they haul us off the buses, and we go sit on the mats, and we're in this big barn. And so in this first session, they're just kind of wrestling together. Um, and they're, they're massively big guys, you know, Olympic champions. And um, they're doing moves, and, and they're not really going hard, but they're showing us, like, this is what it's like at this level. And so we're just, you know, kind of all drooling, like, man, to be that good, you guys are awesome. So they get done, and I think John says, okay, do you have any questions and some snarky high school boy says, I got a question. And he mentions some throw, and I don't remember the name of it now, but it's some kind of throw where you go backwards and the last minute you're bridging, then you turn and I don't know what it's called. But he said, can you do that move? And he was thinking John would either use Ben or Ben would use John. He goes, I sure do know that move. And he over and grabbed the kid. He says, I'll show you the move. And he, he grabs him, and he, it's like a, a cat with a mouse. He's toying with this high school boy. This high school boy's big to us, and he's just throwing him around like a rag doll. 
he picks him up and he throws him, he lands and he hits the mat pretty hard. And he, was, he knew what he's doing, but this kid gets up and he's like this and, and uh, he walks back and then John Peterson says, any more questions? <laughs> and nobody had a question. That's what I think about in verse 35, verse 34. Nobody dared to ask him anything. I mean, he had thrown the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians and the scribes all for the, in the move of, his, of their life probably. So they're silenced. But after a day of questions comes the question of the day. And Jesus now asks them a question. And this is where I think it really gets good and I think we find out where deliverance really comes from. What is the real answer? How do you maneuver and manage and handle life? How do you find meaning? Like, How is all this really answered? And we're going to see that it's not in any of the what's mentioned earlier, politically, theologically, spiritual position. Those what's don't answer it. It's really in a who. It's in a relationship. In verses 35 through 37, are going to show us that really deliverance is in divine identity. Look what Jesus does here. I want you to listen very carefully because this could be confusing, but it's not meant to be. I'll try to explain it very simply to you. So just watch this. In verse 35, Jesus, as he teaches in the temple, says, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Now, this question is also mentioned in chapter 22 of Matthew. And it appears he's asking this to the Pharisees. Do I think the scribes are in the vicinity? I do. He's probably asking this to several of those leaders who are trying to trap him. And he's asking this question. How can the scribes, who, by the way, were the letter of the law, copy it down correctly people? So he's, he's using them in his, in his question. How can they say that the Christ, which is the word for Messiah, is the son of David? And a better way to say it is this. How can those who copy the Old Testament meticulously only say that Christ is uh, of human lineage? That he's only the son of David. That he's coming through the line of David. How can those who copy the law meticulously, perfectly, how can they just say that? Don't they know it's more than that? He says in verse 36, David himself in the Holy Spirit, which is an assertion of the inspiration of the Bible by Christ himself. He says, David says, and he quotes here Psalm 110. And you may want to find 110 in your Bible and just put a finger there. Here's the first, second verse or so. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now what the Jews loved was that last phrase. The enemies are under our feet. That's the deliverance we're looking for. Take the Romans and put them under our feet. Amen, they say to that. That's the Messiah. But his question is, how can the scribes then say that the Christ, the Messiah, who this is spoken about, is just a son of David? Isn't he more than just a better version of you? Isn't he more than just someone coming through the line of David? Because David himself, verse 37, calls him Lord. Now, let me explain this to you. In your Testament, it's hard to kind of notice the different uses of the word Lord in verse 36, which is a quotation of Psalm 110, which, by the way, is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. More New Testament writers quote Psalm 110 than any other Old Testament chapter. So it's a very prominent, the Jews would have known it. If you go to Psalm 110 and you look at it in the Hebrew language as well as in your English versions, you'll find that the first use of the word Lord in Psalm 110 is all caps. It's the word Yahweh. It's speaking of God. 
God the Father. The second Lord in Psalm 110 is the word Adonai. It's speaking of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And so it's a capital L, then little O-R-D. That's how we distinguish in our English versions between those two words. It's the same word when we say it, but it's, they're different words. And so in the Hebrew translation, it would be like this. God the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And yet it's Messiah, it's Christ who is the Lord, who's God the Son. And so the, he's asking this question, how can they read Psalm 110 and transcribe it and copy it and miss the fact that the Christ is also the Son of David and he is the Son of God? How do you guys miss this? He's going to identity as the real answer to deliverance. He's going to a who, not just a what. He's showing it's not about politics. It's not about theological conundrums. It's not about answering the right question with certain specific words to, you know, just on the outside. It's not about any of those things. It's about knowing that Jesus is the Christ. And he saying, scribes, how do you miss this? Because even David said it in the Old Testament. And I think when he's in, comes to verse 37, he says, David himself calls him Lord. So for David to call the coming Christ his son, meaning he comes through his line, he's the rightful heir to the throne, but he also calls him Lord, means he must be from God. So he's in the line of David, but he's from God. So this is one person who's both of these. And as he's saying this, as they're getting this, he's standing in front of them. So in that moment, I think the answer is, is assumed. When he says, so how is he his son? He's saying, guys, you're looking at the one who fulfills both of those. That's what he's doing. I'm, of the, I'm the son of David. I came through the line, the tribe, but I'm from God. I am God among us. And so I am both son of God and son of David. Don't miss who I am. Don't try to solve all of your problems politically, theologically, watch this, even spiritually. They're solved First and foremost, relationally in Jesus Christ and knowing and believing he is who he said he is. This is why Paul would say in Romans, this is such an important thing to understand, that if anyone who's a Christian must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's very important. So you can get a lot of things wrong. You can disagree on when the second coming is. We can disagree on which translation of the Bible to use. You can name a hundred things you can get wrong and still go to heaven. Still be a Christian. But you cannot get his identity wrong and be a Christian. You must get the relationship factor right. And that's bigger than just theological uh, you know, acumen. It's bigger than just having the, the right answer because you learned it when you were three or four and you can spit it out like a set of facts rotely. It's bigger than just you know, voting for someone who's kind of close to your views, getting a really good neighborhood that kind of represents your conservative values or liberal values. It's so much bigger than all of that. It's knowing, is Jesus Christ, it's knowing and believing that Jesus Christ is God's son, that only in Jesus, who came to earth and lived as a man, and yet fully God, that when he lived and died and rose again, he was in that moment and for all of time the 
only Savior, the only one who could deliver, the only one who could rescue. That's salvation. It's all about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so our big idea is really plain and simple in front of us, isn't it? Here's what it is. That only Jesus, not programs, not prowess or position, only Jesus is able to provide the deliverance your soul longs for and needs. In fact, could we say that together? Just real simple truth from these three questions that they asked him and then one he asked them. Can we say it together? Only Jesus, not programs or prowess or position, is able to provide the deliverance your soul longs for and needs. It is truly all about a relationship with Jesus Christ. So, here's the natural question. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Now, even as I've asked you that question, here's probably what most of you have thought. I do, so I'm good. Todd, most of the room's probably full of Christians. This has kind of been a salvation message, it appears. I've checked the box, I'm good. Okay, I'll give you that. There may be a few here who are trusting other things for their deliverance from what they really long for, excuse me, from, what they, um, from their sin, from what they really need, and that is they need spiritual deliverance only Christ can bring. So, so if you're here this morning and you've not trusted Christ, you haven't believed he is God's son, serving and giving his life on the cross, I would just humbly but boldly ask you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and let God save you. Experience his salvation today. I, I'm not afraid to ask you that every week. But I would challenge those of you who thought, oh, this is a salvation message, I'll just check the box because... Yes, our relationship starts at salvation, but watch this. It continues in fellowship. And my, my fear, if I can say, use that word, is that sometimes we start a relationship. He starts it with us. We're in relationship legitimately, but it's a waning one for the rest of our Christian experience. We treat Jesus like this, like, hey, he's our back pocket ticket. Like, you know, I, I've got it. Like, I'll get in. We put it back here, though, and it's like, I don't want to think about it much every day. And so the truth is, and just hear this well, we live like we actually need deliverance. Like we're in bondage. When we're really not. You know Jesus, but you just don't know him very well. He's kind of a stranger to you at times. He's not a resident in your house. And so I just want to kind of challenge the bulk of the crowd here. When I ask you, do you have a relationship with Jesus? You may honestly and authentically say yes. And I'm so happy for that. Amen. I don't want anyone to go to hell. I'm thankful you know Jesus. But I want to ask you, do you know him well? Are you fellowshipping with him? Is he more than just a uh, you know, a, a guy you kind of like know in a distant relationship. Are you close? I was struck by this metaphor in Revelation 3, and with this I close. When John would ask, watch this now, don't lose me. When John would ask the church at Laodicea, he said this, uh, they were, they, they were thinking they had everything going for them. They were rich and increased with goods, they thought. But John said, and as Jesus talking through John, 
He said, you actually are blind and wretched and naked and poor. And he says, here's the answer. In Revelation 3.20, when Jesus is at the door of your heart and he's knocking. So the, the verse goes like this, Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And what's so great about that is that verse is written to a church. We often think about that being written to those who don't know Christ at all. And I think in that context, there probably were folks in the church at Laodicea who didn't know Christ. They were probably in the audience, much like Hebrews. It's a mixed audience. There's folks who are legitimately saved, and there's folks who are in that audience who probably weren't saved. And so to both, here's what Christ is doing. Can I come in? Can we have a relationship? And guess what? He's standing at your door. He's knocking. He's not got a ballot. He's not got a dictionary. He's not got a thesaurus. He's not got a checklist or a test. He's not got any of those things. He's got himself. But he knows the answer to your deepest need is not really political. It's not even theological. And in some sense, it's not even spiritual. It's relational. Your deepest need is relationship with God through Jesus. So do you have one? And if you do, how is it? We've been urging you with this word lately. Travis has done a great job of just kind of keeping this in front of us. To grow. Use the discipleship pathway. Read our Bibles. We've been sending out some devotions in the month of January. Uh, just a number of ways we're trying to encourage you to grow in your relationship with Christ. We are committed to increasing our outreach, not only here in this service, but in our community, so that folks who don't have a relationship can hear of the great news of Christ's love and submit to Christ and begin one. But all of those are about a relationship with Christ. So I just want to ask you, are you kind of banking on, trusting in, depending? Are you, are you spending more time worried about how things are going for your life and thinking answers to, to your problems are found politically? maybe academically, maybe technically? or Are you worried about how to be in compliance with just your words, but your heart is really far from God? In other words, are those, are those first three questions more about how you handle things, or is the last question Jesus asked really your heart? Man, I believe that you are who you say you are, and I want to relate to God through Jesus. See, that's the relationship that answers every question fundamentally. So how is your relationship with God. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.